Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. It's kind of, um, it doesn't actually feel like it's been two weeks uh, between shows, but remarkably, it has been. And uh, we've uh, both been uh, very busy. I've been off uh, finishing a few projects for um, some clients of ours, uh, finishing one with sheep. That's all I'm going to tell you for now, but hopefully you'll get to see the pictures in the next uh, few months, I'm hoping. And I am still in the DRC. Well, actually, I think the last time I recorded, I was in Namibia, if I remember rightly. Uh, So now you're hearing me recording my part of the intro from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm currently sitting in my hotel room with an afternoon off, but it's been a manic last... uh, I'm trying to work out actually when we left. So uh, we took a boat from uh, Namibia, I think it was something like the 26th of July... And currently it is the 6th of uh, August right now, I think. Um, So during that time, I've been on a boat, traveled along the Angolan coast, gone up the Congo River, uh, relocated a bunch of elephants into a park here, uh, and then a whole heap of other crazy stuff, which uh, I'm not going to tell you guys about just now, um, but you will hear about it uh, in the future. Um, Things have been, yeah real let's just put it that way here um but it's uh, an incredible place the congo river was insane it was like nothing i'd ever seen it was like the lost world just jungle coming up to this river that was 10 kilometers wide at the mouth i mean the one island i think was thirty thousand hectares that we sailed past uh, that was just an island I mean, that's, to give uh, some sort of scale i think that's basically bigger than invermark estate which is about 50,000 acres <laughs> above us, which is massive. And this was just an island in the middle of the river. That's uh, that's pretty crazy. Did you manage to cast a line, or was there anyone fishing? Yeah, there so has to be fishing in that river. Interestingly, the first, I'd say probably the first hour up the river from the sea, uh, there was a lot of people fishing, <clears throat> like a lot of uh, local fishing boats out with nets. Uh, and I think there's a lot of crossover between the salt water and the fresh water, so there's probably a lot of fish there. But the further up the river we went, uh, the less evidence I saw of that. Um, I think that there's probably a lot of pressure on that river, um, all up and down it, in terms of people trying to take protein out of it. Um, but yeah, lo- loads of people fishing, lots of people on it. Uh, but still, huge sections of it um, looked largely uninhabited you know there were there were no people or villages along it just an amazing place to see that's uh that's pretty cool also nice to hear that it's not all being cut down you know right to the the water no, edge the, the park uh, that we're uh, working in right now um is not that far outside Kinshasa where i'm staying uh and i mean this place is like a mega city i mean think of the busiest cities in the world and some of the poorest and it looks like that uh, but the park is, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 k's outside the edge of town, maybe not even, uh, and it's protected, but up to the fence, there's you know, just cultivated everywhere. So to have an area like that protected is so close to a big city is really quite special. But I mean, the, this country is massive. You, everyone needs to look at a map of Africa 
um, which is a continent, just because I've had a few people saying, <laughs> thinking Africa is a country, which is uh, always quite amusing. Um, but look at the DRC on a map of Africa. It's the second biggest country on the continent, and it basically spans the entire width of the center of Africa, almost. Not quite, but almost. It's huge. Uh, and there are large parts of it where there's basically, it is as it always was. You have to think as well that the the average uh, map that you look at does not have anything to scale. So uh, your typical map has the US and Europe quite large uh, and the rest of the world quite small. So like Australia and New Zealand, right tucked down at the bottom, are really small on a lot of maps. I'm not sure if you buy them in Australia or New Zealand, they're bigger. But um, anyway, in the UK, most maps are like that. And they're not to scale because Australia is absolutely colossal compared to Europe. But yet they make Australia yeah. look the same size as yeah, Europe. It's, it's, just, it's interesting because I had never even... Obviously, I knew where the place was, but I'd never really looked in detail you know, and studied this part of Africa on a map until I had a reason to because I knew I was coming here. Uh, I mean, it was quite good fun. I sat down with Alex uh, Olofsson, who, in fact, is the guest on this podcast. I sat down with him a couple of weeks ago uh, and looked at Google Maps of the DRC and just started zooming in to different places. And so much of it is just bush, just jungle. And I met another guy um, two days ago who's working on a project to reinstate some of the lost parks uh, sort of in the interior. And he was showing, I mean, there's nobody there. Uh, well, there are people passing through because they've still got a lot of poaching problems, but basically no one really lives there. Um, areas that used to um, be called home to over 100,000 elephants. And these are just areas within this country, not the country as a whole. Uh, now there's only like 300 elephants left, so they're basically all gone. Um, but the habitat's still there. It, you know, it hasn't been turned into to farmland. And to see these pictures, it looks like something out of Jurassic Park. It's absolutely insane. I mean, we're uh, hopefully going to be able to see it because you're you're going to have film of it. So we won't just be able to talk about it. We'll be able to show everyone. Hopefully. That is the that is the grand plan. That is, that is why I'm here. Um, but yeah, well, I think we should move on from that because uh, that's kind of a podcast in itself. But as I said, our guest is going to be um, Alex Olofsson, who, I, who we promised was going to be the guest two weeks ago, but we screwed up and put the wrong podcast up. Um, so now you're going to hear from him. I recorded this three months ago when I was in Namibia last time. <clears throat> Just so happens I was also staying with him now because the elephants that we've moved up here um, came from his farm. And you're going to hear all about hunting, Africa, conservation, amazing history of his family and his father. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit about his mother as well, who I've been with um, when I was back in Namibia and who is with me here um, in the DRC. And uh, it's just a really great, honest, frank chat from somebody who really does know his stuff. Um, he's only a couple of years older than me, but I mean, he has knowledge in his head like someone who's lived two lives. Uh, I always enjoy spending time with Alex and it was good to see him again now. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit about this trip actually, but bear in mind when you hear about it, the, the trip that I'm on now, but when you hear about it, we're talking about it three months ago. Um, so you'll get a little bit of uh, an insight as to what we were expecting coming up. And then at some point in the future, in the next couple of months, I would think, uh, we'll do an entire podcast on what this project has been about. Well, I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast because I've not heard it yet. 
So uh, I shall be listening it, listening to it with everyone else when uh, when I put it out. So we have a winner from our competition two weeks ago to win Volume 3, a copy of Volume 3 of Modern Huntsman, who are our partner on this podcast. Uh, we're work- working increasingly close together. We're already talking about uh, Volume 4 uh, already, which is crazy. In fact, in the next few weeks, I'm going to be editing some stuff from Volume 4, but Volume 3 is out all on wildlife management. And all we wanted you to do two weeks ago was to tell us what the animal sound was that we played for you. Uh, and unlike two weeks before that, when nobody got the right answer, we had loads of correct entries. And you have the winner, Daryl. Um, well, you had the, 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 you've got the winner who was the first person to, to select the yes. right answer. Yeah, so uh, on, in this case, it was just the, the person that got it right first was going to be the winner. Uh, and it was on Instagram, the name dogs underscore and underscore quarry um, and it's Mark and he is the winner of a very fine copy of Mon Huntsman Volume 3 and but we had loads of entries there was uh, one entry unfortunately it was quite a few uh, a lot of entries had correct entries had already been before this person guessed but they even managed to guess the country it was in because it wasn't from the UK it was from Australia and they managed to guess that from the bird in the background so well done but the main sound was a belching fallow deer. Yeah, uh, for those correct. people who want to know, belching fallow deer. Uh, and I think that it's been so successful, and people have enjoyed entering it so much, clearly by all the emails and messages that we've had, that we're going to do exactly the same again. Uh, so if you would, if you entered and you didn't win a copy of vol- Volume Three, and you don't already have your hands on a copy, and you need to. You need to go and get yourself a copy, and you need to get a copy for your best friend who you know is going to like that sort of thing as well, uh, which you can do either on our website if you're in Europe, rest of the world, or through the Modern Huntsman website if you're in North America. Um, but here's another chance to win a copy. So we're going to play an animal sound for you uh, in a second, and all you've got to do is contact us with the correct answer. And just like on this podcast, we will announce the winner in two weeks' time. So here is your sound. So good luck guessing uh, that sound. Uh, all entries, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Uh, we'll also put it up on Instagram and people can uh, direct message us on there because that's how a large amount of the last entries came through. Uh, yeah, the people have been really enjoying the sound the sound competition. But we're, even if we're not going to be doing competitions, we're going to carry on doing the sound because so many people have been enjoying doing it. Yeah. Uh, we also have another announcement. Uh, we have been, over the last... 18 months we've had on our website and on social uh, a raffle uh, a raffle uh, to win a safari uh, an African hunting safari in conjunction with um, Winterberg Safari Daryl has the full spiel so he's going to uh, read through what the, what you got to win it was £10 a ticket and the reason why we were running this raffle uh, was to raise funds for drought relief in the Eastern Cape. Now, I've been talking a lot about the drought in Namibia, which is incredibly bad, but <laughs> over many parts of Africa, they've been suffering with a lack of rain over many, many years. We're not just talking about one season. And certain parts of the Eastern Cape is just the same. Uh, so my good friend, Dia van der Lange, uh, who runs Winterberg Safaris, who we had um, hunters over with three months ago, uh, in fact, I brought a podcast, an intro to a podcast from that hunt um, just a couple of podcasts ago. 
uh, he was working with a couple of friends basically to put up a safari for people to win. Uh, and the value was £3,000. And they did the draw in South Africa about a week ago. And the winner was somebody who had entered through our website. So congratulations to Michael Thurgood. You are the winner of an African safari, which is absolutely incredible. All you're going to have to do is fly yourself there, and then the rest is going to be taken care of. Uh, and Daryl's going to remind everybody right now uh, what it is that you're going to win. So this was um, a safari in the Eastern Cape in conjunction with, obviously, Winterberg Safaris and the Round Table 62. Uh, in aid of drought relief and anti-poaching efforts. Uh, and as Byron said, for more than five years, this particular area has suffered limited rainfall, resulting in an increasingly desperate situation for the wildlife and the people. Uh, farmers and hunters have uh, resorted to bringing lorry loads of food to help game survive, and recently have um, begun relocating some wildlife uh, in attempt to find food. And as Byron is doing right now, that's actually very similar to what they've been doing um, in some parts of Namibia, haven't they, Byron? Yeah, exactly the same thing. I mean, basically, lack of rain means carrying capacity of the land reduces because one for water and one because of food. So you have two choices. You either remove it by eating the game, by, by culling, or you find somewhere else that can take it. Those are the only two choices you have. You've got to reduce the carrying capacity, otherwise things just die. Um, so that's what's been happening, and that's what they've been raising. Uh, that's what these funds are going towards. So it is... Well, what, what a prize is it? Five days and six nights they've won. Uh, one uh, Kudu, one Impala, and one Warthog. Uh, overall prize valued at just over 3k. So... I mean, pretty damn good for a £10 entry. <laughs> so congratulations, Michael. We will um, hopefully, I'm not quite sure if you listen to the podcast or not. Hopefully you do. If you don't, you should. Uh, but I will make sure we email you out to let you know and send you the details so that you can speak to the guys out there and plan when you're going to go on your safari. Yeah, awesome. And I think the last thing that we need to mention is that if you would like to support this podcast... Uh, which you do just by listening, by the way. So thank you for listening. Uh, but you can uh, go over to Patreon and support us that way. And pretty much every show that we put out, we get some new patrons. So thank you very much. There's uh, basically different tiers that you we like to give you something for supporting. Uh, and depending on the tier that you support us, you will get uh, different items that are available otherwise on our shop. And for our very top tier... Um, special supporters, you also get a shout-out on the podcast, and my brother has the list of people who we're going to shout-out for. I do indeed. Uh, so, thank you to our uh, our awesome top-tier listeners, which is uh, Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, uh, Richard Barker, James Marchington, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McGraith, and South Ayrshire Stalking. So, there we have it. And uh, I, I encourage you guys to check out the South Ayrshire Stalking Guys as well. They've got a great Facebook page. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you're ever thinking about coming to the UK and doing some uh, some stalking, that I would recommend getting in contact with those guys. Good. Well, that's uh, about it for me. Do you have anything else, Daryl, before we hand people over to the podcast? Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought um, just quickly, uh, just before we let you go, uh, I need to go and find the damn thing because my phone has closed the emails, but I got a very nice email and we get emails. This is why we love getting emails from people and we get emails like this all the time and it makes our day. And it's from uh, it's from Lucy 
and I'm just going to read you an extract from it. Uh, so, Dear Daryl and Byron, I recently discovered your Into the Wilderness podcast, and it's fantastic. I'm going through the back catalogue and listening to it every day. I've also been watching your Into the Wilderness series and uh, on YouTube, which is great. Cinematography is awesome. I might add that the Into the Wilderness series is over four years old now, uh, which, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you forget that it's just out there for people to watch. So she continues, I actually wanted to thank you. You've helped me rekindle my love for hunting and shooting and fishing. For the past decade, I distanced myself from it, believing it was cruel by killing animals and even stopped going beating and picking up. Uh, so basically, she goes on to say she wasn't an anti or anything. The bottom line is the, the, the podcast has kind of made her think about it. And she continues to say, um, a person who was in touch with the natural world, I have a deep passion for conservation, hunting, fishing, shooting. Um, and at the very heart of it, um, conservation, I've just applied for a firearms license. Um, I used to love hunting rabbits and want to get back into it. Uh, food for me, my boyfriend, and our three Labradors. Maybe even one day build up some stalking. Uh, there was a bit in the middle on that, but uh, that was the gist of the email, and it was absolutely awesome. So thank you, Lucy, for sending us the email. Yes, thank you very much. So I think we'll go straight into the show uh, and enjoy. Alex, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast, and thank you very much for having me in your awesome place for the last couple of days. It's, it's great having you here. It's uh, it's uh, been uh, well, not a journey, but it's been some time since we first spoke. It and has first, almost uh, a year and a half ago, I think. Yeah. I was trying. I was thinking about that the other day. But we're doing this podcast outside. I don't do a lot of podcasts outside, but I think it would have been rude not to try at least because the view from your balcony here is stunning and breathtaking. Don't even really do it justice. It was even better yesterday when it was raining and the clouds were all moody and there was amazing light shafts. And I think you're, the lechery aren't here anymore, but oh, they're just behind us. But if, uh, our, if our listeners hear this kind of snorting, sneezing sound, it's not us. <laughs> they do make a little bit of a ridiculous noise. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think sometimes we forget how privileged we are with uh, just the scenery we have here. And I think it was on one of our first calls when uh, when, uh, when we were doing a video call and it was actually elephant in the background. Yeah, I, I think that was basically our first uh, WhatsApp FaceTime video. You said, I, want, I need to show you this. And you turned around and there's an elephant eating out the tree. Where was that? Uh, that was actually in front of my mom's house. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, what was yesterday evening? You had a pretty close elephant encounter. Now what's the name of that uh, elephant? Uh, Kamari. Kamari. Yeah. yeah, he's a bit grumpy. Yeah, it's a it's a Kamari translates basically to the naughty one. Yeah, I can see that <laughs> <laughs> because the first night or the second night uh, I was there up at the staying at the hunting camp, I got the, some pictures of him fighting with one of the well, it wasn't so much fighting, pushing one of the rhinos which had started the fight. Uh, and then the following night, he came in just when you dropped me off and I wanted to go and get some video footage and take some pictures of him. And as soon as he spotted me, I mean, he came around the, the side of the dam because I was lying on the ground. He came straight up. He wasn't very happy about it at all. And then I thought I'd push my luck for a second time just down beside the swimming pool there. But a few seconds later, he was already deciding, no, I don't like this very much. <laughs> I don't know if it's just because I'm ginger or because he didn't like it. <laughs> He's not used to seeing gingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think anything that's that's a little out of the ordinary for him, he just wants to go and, and stand on and, it. and stand on it, <laughs> investigate it. And I put up a new a new solar tower for a solar water pump, and um, 
Yeah, the first thing he does is goes and pushes over the tower. <laughs> which I saw the other day, which is a real pain when you're trying to actually provide water for him, which he was then drinking out of. Yeah, exactly. Tell me a little bit about uh, this place. I mean, I've seen a good chunk of it because we were up in the air the other day, so you flew me over some of it, and uh, one of your PHs, Steve, was good enough to take me around for a day, and we basically just <laughs> we basically just drove for the entire day seeing different parts of the different parts of the farm. But what, what what is the history? How did you how did you end up here? Because I guess that history kind of starts with your dad. Yeah, yeah. So my dad, well, my dad had a very interesting life. Um, so he he basically he was born in South Africa, and when he was twelve years old, um, his family moved up to Namibia, and well, back then it was part of South Africa still, and uh, actually close to the Itasha Pan, the Itasha National Park, um, they had a cattle ranch. Growing up, he was always very fond of of game and wildlife, so he'd actually go out in the bush and steal um, guinea fowl eggs out of the nests and come and throw the chicken eggs away and put them under the chickens so the chickens would would hatch them. Yeah, and he was getting lots of trouble with his parents because he was, you know, chucking out the chicken eggs. And uh, yeah, as he grew up, he he he'd by horseback just ride into the Itosha Pan and then into the park. And back then there weren't fences. And uh, one day when he was about 16 years old, he came back with his horse and uh, he had a little lasso and he had a, he caught a young giraffe. <laughs> so that's, so, so that's he incredible. Was, yeah. So even back then as a young man, yeah. it was like the start of knowing a little bit about your family history. That was where it started, basically. Exactly. <laughs> And uh, he, um, he, well, he wasn't very fond of school. Um, so uh, when he, he basically went to a technical school and did up until grade 10 and that was it. And then uh, started working as a bricklayer um, in, in Wintook. And um, so he read in a, in a magazine, a local magazine we have here, about a guy that was catching game and selling it to zoos. In, in, uh, back then it was at uh, Tanganyika, Tanzania now. So he read about this guy and was was really intrigued and decided, well, that's where he wants to go and that's that's what he wants to do. So um, with the money he made off of uh, bricklaying here, he he put together his little old car. And because Namibia was still part of South Africa back then, you needed to go down to Pretoria to get a passport. Hmm. So, so how old is he at this point? Uh, he was uh, about between eighteen and twenty somewhere. And he convinced two friends to to join him on this this epic trip. So uh, anyway, the three of them headed down to Pretoria, went, got passports, and then uh, the route would have taken them through. Um, well, they went up, and then they they would have had to go through um, Zimbabwe back then, Rhodesia. But um, they were not allowed to go in unless they could prove that they were financially stable and a bunch of other stuff. So you needed all that for the visa requirements. And by luck, somewhere they ran into a bank manager and helped him out with a broken car or something. He wrote a letter to them and, okay, Bob's your uncle, and uh, they were in Rhodesia. And by that time, their money had run out, so they started working locally. And um, so they they ended up on a farmer's place and uh, basically were running the tractors, plowing the lands, and uh, just uh, just helping out on the farm. Uh, and then one of the one of the three decided it was enough. He wanted to go back. He came back to Namibia. There was two of them, and uh, the the farmer they were working for was very fond of rugby. So every Saturday they'd go and watch the local game. And uh, on, on the one Saturday, one of the props was was ill, and they needed somebody to stand in. So my my dad jumped in. 
<laughs> the, the the little community where they were working was was all centered around rugby and uh, seeing as he got into the team that he got a job as a, as a building inspector in the town <laughs> amazing how things work out <laughs> so uh, anyway after that um after he, he got together enough money there um the journey continued and he headed up on to to um tanganyika uh, and the second friend then also decided to stay back so he was on his on his own and he uh, he finally made it up, and um, I remember him telling me that the first time he he set eyes on uh, on uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, he just stopped next to the road for about an hour, just sitting there staring at the mountain. And um, so he he finally made it to this guy that was was catching game. Um, was, uh, the, the, the old guy's name was Wimbali de Beer. And so basically, um, yeah, they would catch animals and uh, crate them up and put them on ships or in planes and sell them to zoos all over the, the world. And this was the very, very early days of yeah, game this was this was early 60s. And um, so he basically got there and he said, well, I'm here and I'd like to work for you. So he worked for this guy for about seven years just for food and clothing, basically. And um, in the period that uh, that he was working there, uh, Paramount Pictures came and uh, wanted to make a movie, and the movie was pretty much based on what their lives were back then, um, just you know, with a little bit of romance and comedy added, of course. And that movie was Hatari with uh, John Wayne. And, I know well. <laughs> and that's that's pretty much if you watch the movie, that's that's how they lived. <laughs> Um, because it doesn't. If you watch the movie, um, which I encourage people to do, it, I mean, it's it's obviously very dated, but it's of of its time. It's of its generation, and it does seem like a fairy tale. Exactly. But these guys were living that fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 what they were. What what their everyday life was like, and um, so my dad was put in charge of for training the animals that were in the movie. So in the movie, there were three little elephants. And so it was actually four small elephants and he had to do the training and all the scenes they did. So usually, or in the movie, if you see the elephants running, then he's usually just out of shot uh, running in front of them. Where there's so a, they're following And they're following <laughs> And there was a scene where the elephants went into this little water hole and he was actually sitting in the water with a snorkel <laughs> and so that they would come into the water hole. Really? <laughs> so uh, so it's all all funny, you know, behind the, behind the scenes stories. And um, what what many people don't know is that all the indoor scenes of the movie they actually didn't film in Tanzania, so they loaded up a DC six with about forty animals, flew from Arusha to West Africa through Dakar to South America, um, finally ended up in uh, in Burbank in in California. Um, to do all the indoor scenes with the animals in the studios in, in LA. And uh, that was about a week's long trip where every stop they had to stop and, you know, clean all the cages out, get feed for the animals. And it was, I mean, that, that, that you could probably write a book just about that one week's trip. Yeah. I told my dad that the other day, that that, that, that stuff had been shot in the States and he couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's amazing to think about, you know, just moving all those animals over there. Even today, it's a logistics nightmare. Yeah, exactly. And today, you you know, you put them on a plane and it's 17 hours and you're there or, you know, it's uh, back then with the DC-6, it was it was a whole week's worth of traveling. Um, so, yeah, they, they uh, he went over and he was responsible for the animals there while they were finishing the filming. And after the movie was finished, they, they actually gave him quite a few offers to stay on there with 
in the in the movie industry you know doing training and and so um in in the movie he actually stunt doubled for john wayne as well i didn't know that um so all the scenes where where they're out in the bush and you know um, lassoing the animals sitting so in when front he's of sitting the on truck. front of the yeah, vehicle yeah, that's right, your dad yeah <laughs> no way i actually watched that scene in the states with tyler sharp just <laughs> really? like two months ago we were talking about the film and yeah. i hadn't at that point i had no idea of this connection yeah. or even actually that i would have a chance to see you when yeah. i was here and uh, we were talking about it for some reason he was saying he tries to watch it once a year and uh, we sat in his lounge and watched that scene on the front and i would have had no idea that that was not john wayne and that was actually your dad <laughs> so um yeah, so they actually offered him a, a movie as a as a or a, no, well not a movie a, a role as a stunt double in in the, in the filming industry. But he by then he'd already decided he needed to get back to Africa. He'd already been so, away for too long. Yeah, so uh, so he, he got together some money with this whole uh, filming thing and basically traveled through the states and then uh, uh, took a cruise ship over to to England and traveled England Europe until his money was was done <laughs> and then went back uh, to to Tanganyika Tanzania and uh, then uh, started working as a PH and and got more into the hunting side of things okay. and um yeah then uh, when when the whole unrest started in Tanzania with the Mau Mau and so they they didn't want to renew his works permit because he was there on a works permit on on a South African passport and um then he decided to go back to South Africa and, and look for something in in wildlife and nature there so when he got back um yeah it was uh he actually um started he, he was always fond of, of taking pictures and that so so that was one of his ideas to to start making wildlife movies and that but it wasn't uh wasn't uh, didn't really pay the bills and finally um by coincidence he got uh he Somebody said, "Well, they they need somebody at the Natal Parks Board," and he went for a job interview. And they they asked him, "What can you do?" And he said, "Well, you can catch animals." <laughs> and the problem that they had in uh, in Filosi Shishlui um, Park back then was that it was heavily overpopulated, so they were uh, just um, shooting animals just to reduce the numbers. And um, it it was it, I mean, they weren't even using it. Some of the some of the biologists actually um, um, had the had. Uh, Said that well, they should just poison the water holes to reduce the numbers. Really? So, so that it was, was just, their solution to it at the time. Yeah, well, potential so, solution. Yeah, so it, it was just crazily overpopulated, and and they they had nothing to do with the game. Um, and when he came, he said, "Well, he he can catch animals." I said, "Well, just catch whatever you can, so we can just get it relocated." And um, so he started off with with nets and basically on horseback chasing the animals into the nets and then physically manhandling them into crates loading so the crates like proper cowboy style yeah, yeah there's a there's a there's the and when when he finally perfected the method there was a lot of media attention on it and they actually did a, a short little movie you know showing the whole process and all that and it, it's on youtube it's called capture to be free um but um, yeah, so they started off with nets, and and they had lots of mortalities because animals wouldn't see the nets, so they'd run straight into them, break their necks, or you know, get uh, get stuck in the nets and just die of overexertion. And then he noticed that if the animals would come down and run parallel to the nets, they'd they'd see them and then they'd veer off. 
So he started with the first one was just like a meter high piece of plastic that he put on the bottom of the net. And when the animals, as soon as they saw it, they just stopped riding their tracks or they try and jump over it. And then he went to full length, like 2.4 meter high plastic. And that's how the, the whole mass, mass capture method started. And now it's, it's, it's called the Olofsson method after him. So, and... Um, and that's basically how it's done. Yeah. I mean, the first game capture that I ever saw and took part in more than a decade ago was using that method with a helicopter and the and, and the nets, just like we flew over the other day yeah. that you'd set up. Yeah. And it's really weird to think that 10 years later, I'm now meeting the son of the man who came up with it. It's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you just mentioned, so you, you do it with a helicopter. Well, when, when he started this, um, it was against the park regulations that any aircraft or helicopter was allowed to fly over the, the park, low level. And um, so all those first animals were actually herding in on horseback. <laughs> and uh, the park directors didn't want to hear anything about helicopter because he thought, well, it might be easier, let's try it. But they said, no, not at all. And he was quite a non-conformist, so he didn't really listen to anybody. So, so he put up a capture site and uh, there was this little uh, uh, outcrop, a little copy. And uh, he put the directors of the park on there and said, well, have a look today. We're going to catch some wildebeest today. And there was an army base not too far from the park. So he poached a few uh, impala in the park, went to the army pilots and said, well, let's trade the meat for some flying time. Yeah. And they flew from, and the next thing that the, the directors of the park know, this helicopter comes flying over their heads. And well, they chased in 250 wildebeest in one run, <laughs> go into the, into the capture crawl. And uh, that was it from job done. job done. And since then helicopters were fine. And they were, they were convinced by the efficiency of that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that was basically when how what is uh, what he did in in Natal in the parks board, and um, then after a while they wanted to give him a promotion to a desk job, and uh, he said, "Well, thank you very much," and gave him his resignation. He wanted to be in the bush. Yeah, and, on the ground. Uh, so he uh, and his his brother was actually living in in Wintook and uh, told him about a piece of property that was available here for uh, for lease. So he came up. So after he left the parks, he was in uh, he worked in South Africa for a while, just doing private game capture. So just catching and reselling and catching reselling. And then uh, he came up here with his whole capture team. And uh, so the the piece of land that we're on today, um, well, he came up here with a truck and with with twenty guys and seven hundred rand back then. That was it. So he didn't have money to buy any land, so he started leasing the land, and then basically just started catching game and selling and catching selling. And there wasn't there wasn't any infrastructure whatsoever on the land, so uh, he uh, put up his tents and lived in tents for the first few years. Just like pioneer uh, stuff. Yeah. And uh, you should ask, you should ask Steve about this as well. He he was there from those beginning times as well, so he lived in the tents as well. Amazing. Um, and so with the game capture, um, the, the people buying game back then, they were always looking for breeding herds. So typically in a herd um, in the bush, you'd, you'd always have 50-50 male-female split with young animals. Um, but the, the people buying in would always want more of a, of a like a 90-10 ratio females to males. So there was always a surplus in males. And um, with Natal and the, the media attention and um, and uh, the film industry, um, he'd, he'd built up quite a connection with a lot of Americans and then started getting into the, the hunting industry. So the first 
um, SEI show that he attended in Vegas was, I think, the third one that was ever held. So um, it, it was, he was... So this is really early days. This is really early days. There was like 40 exhibitors and it was all just... So, so back then, Vegas was all just like one story. It was, mm. it was cheaper to bolt flat than go up. Um, and that's how the, how, the, how the hunting side started. Um, and uh, originally, it was the, 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 the main lodge down here was just four rooms and it was just a hunting lodge. And then there was a German film company that came and uh, wanted to do a, a movie uh, about basically it, it centered around poaching. It was called The Red Elephants. And uh, they needed room for uh, 60 people for three months. So uh, by that time, my mom had, was on the scene. Um, so she, she actually started doing holiday work here and got to know my dad. And, and that's where we're. Uh, she uh, stayed as well and uh, has been here ever since. And so she actually, uh, when when they when this film uh, crew came for for um, and wanted to do this movie, they had to build a whole bunch of extra rooms. So they built uh, I don't know how many rooms. I think twenty rooms in three weeks. Uh, okay, when you told me that when I was standing in front of those buildings, I couldn't believe that you'd done it, <laughs> that they'd done it so quickly yeah. back then. So or say yes, work out how to do it after. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so, they must have been building 24 hours a day. Yeah, they? yeah. they had two teams, one day team, one night team. My mom was doing the electrics, running cables on the roofs. <laughs> and it was just, it was, you know, the, the hunting was going, but it was still, it was, um, it was, tight times you know it wasn't yeah. wasn't extra money and this this film uh, crew coming was good money so they made made Just it work, made it work. They, and um yeah so when, when that was done when the film crew left the the big lodge was there and that's how the tourism side started amazing so as it stands today you've got um as i as i've seen and i've, I've stayed in both sets of sort of accommodation you've got uh, a very busy hunting lodge up there. There's been different clients in and out in the couple of days that I've been there. And then lots of people coming in and out of the, the tourism side. And this is people here to take pictures, see lions being fed and all that good stuff when people come to Africa. How has that um, worked out as it's gone from when that was set up when your dad was running it to as it is now? Because as we've discussed over you know the last couple of days, there's a definite, in terms of society, there's a definite conflict there between the hunting side and, and the tourism side and how they mix or if they don't mix. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that you have hands-on experience day-to-day -day in both of those. Yeah. And it gives you, I think, quite a unique yeah. perspective, especially when people are throwing out comments like, get rid of all the hunting, tourism could fill the gap. Uh, and it, I think it's easy to make those kind of statements if you don't have knowledge. So I'm I'm intrigued to hear more about that from your perspective because yeah. you genuinely have both of it. I've seen it here. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a it's an interesting combination to make. And 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 you know the the hunters usually understand the tourism side because all hunters know somebody that doesn't really want to hunt. Um, but the tourists and the tourists don't always understand the hunting side and a lot. Nine times out of ten, it's just because they they um, they're uneducated about hunting. They they don't know the background. Um, so with a lot of the tourists, you know, if well, a lot of them don't ask, but the ones that do ask, if we do hunt, um, and we we tell them yes, and we explain the whole process for them, and and you know the, where it fits in, and um, 
how we use it as a management tool, then they're fine with it. But it's a, it's an interesting um, comparison to make. So the tourism side is a very high turnaround um, um, business. So tourists will stay one, maybe two nights. Whereas on the hunting side, you're looking at seven to 10 days on a hunt. Um, so it, we worked out from, from last year's numbers that um, for, for the amount of turnover every hunter brings in, you need 72 tourists. And that's turnover, that's not profit. And if you look at the amount of waste generated, the amount of vehicles you need to, to take 72 people out into the bush, um, the amount of water used, it, um, the 72 people have way more of an impact than… Per, even per person. Per, per, than, yeah. than the one hunter going out. So on average, a hunter would do six or seven animals with us. Well, you, you, you need more than six or seven animals to feed those 72 people. <laughs> so… Um, so you know the 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 tourists the the big thing they don't understand with the hunting is that they don't have the background they they uh, they don't you know we we grew up with it and i think that's a big thing where when we get into these discussions and and have you know trying to convince people that are against hunting you know the benefits of hunting and that it's like if you take uh, you know if you if you if you look at somebody who's uh, who wants to go study engineering he needs 12 years of basic math education to get to the point where he can be a first year engineer yeah so you, you start off with nothing i think of a lot of the times when we start this conversation to try and get people over to the hunting side we jump in way too high you know they don't have the basic background they don't understand well in our from our view the the african view of well it's it's meat it's protein it's it's what we need to survive but also an asset exactly and as as soon as we make it an asset and we give value to those animals then they will stay but you see it in so many african countries where um, because the animal doesn't have value, um, it, it's it's its basic value um, is is the meat, and mm-hmm. um, for somebody that can't sell the meat, there's no reason in in hurting the animal or keeping it alive. Um, so they'll just consume it himself. And you see, that was in the Congo um, middle of last year, and there's absolutely no wildlife left. And that's basically just because, well, if you're hungry, you're going to go and kill something to eat it. Um, the, the the bottom line is that we always need to 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 promote and tell people is that we need to use hunting as a management tool. My dad always said it's not about the animal you take out; it's about the ones you leave behind. So true. And if you look at a if you look, I had a discussion with somebody else the other day that that wasn't well was on the neutral side, but wasn't really into hunting. And when I said, well, trophy hunters only shoot the bulls for the trophies here in Africa. It was an enlightenment to her. And she said, oh, wow, that's that's nice. So the, the female herds are not disturbed. I said, well, no. Um, and, and you know, these are these are things that we need to put out there. And because when, unfortunately, nowadays, when people see anything about trophy hunting, it's usually a big uh, trophy picture over an elephant or a lion or a giraffe yeah. on social media. and Something it, that grabs attention. Exactly. And it, and it just gives out the, the wrong... Um, picture of the the hunting industry and the hunting community when you told me the the number of 70 odd to one i couldn't believe it when you first mentioned it because i'd always i've used that 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 argument to 
help people understand that it's not a one for one. You can't just replace one person who wants to come and take pictures with one hunter in terms of the, the economics. And then, I mean, we can take the conversation further on. You still need to manage the game, whether someone's taking pictures of it or not. You're probably still going to have to go and cull stuff, but we can talk about that in a minute. But for that number to be so high, I always use the ratio of about 1 to 12. So when you said 1 to 70-odd, I, I you've made my discussion even easier when I have this debate <laughs> in the future. And what, what we've noticed as well is Somebody who's on a on a photographic trip, with a tourist, uh, a regular tourist, will try and negotiate for a discount wherever he can. <laughs> Whereas the hunter usually is happy to see where his dollar goes to. So you know they'll be happy to pay a, a high daily rate and trophy fees because they they know that the money's being used in the right direction whereas on the tourism side the first thing they do when they get into the rooms is go push all the buttons to see what the what's not working so they can ask for a discount and you <laughs> do know, people they, really do that yeah and, oh and so you get people on the tourist side that are saying well they're so green and they're the conservationists and so on but when they come and stay with us and we are not funded by anything else except for ourselves yeah, we have private we private business we don't get donations any government funding whatsoever so every every cent that gets put into this property for conservation comes from what we make out of tourism and hunting and then it's always it's it's always uh, kind of ironic that people on the tourism side that th that say that they're the big conservationists and so green want to come and and um, you know diamond nickel you out of out of something but like at the moment we're in a really bad drought so this year we'll probably be feeding about 800 to 1,000 tons of alfalfa. And, well, nobody's giving it to us, so we'll have to pay for it. Yeah. If, going back to what we were saying about replacing replacing hunters with people who don't, even if you could make the, the economics work, um, and let's ignore for a moment the bigger footprint that they make and the more water that they have to consume and the more food that you have to feed them, the game here, I mean, and this is a massive place, would still need managed. Exactly, exactly. It, it would still need. You couldn't managed. be hands off. No, not at all. No. Um, and and the, the the thing is, if you if you do only tourism, you don't need that large amount of game. If you have three or four animals of each species, the tourist happy. He's you know if if he can see an elephant, a giraffe, a zebra, and a rhino, he's happy. And throw a line in the mix, and you'll get a tip. Yeah. Um, but for uh, if you run a hunting operation, you need sustainable herds to be able to have produce enough male animals, bulls, to have trophies every few years. So with 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 our hunting operation, we need at least a minimum of two hundred animals per species. Um, just to, to be sustainable. Whereas if we were just doing tourism, I could have five of each and it would be way easier for us to, to manage droughts. Costs and, would be far less. Yeah. Um, but and it's, it's like you said, the, the herds still need managing. So even if we were not to do any trophy hunting, we would still have to do culling and, and take out the animals ourselves. Um, there's a, so we do live capture every year as well. Um, so we're excess animals, and they, these are usually the um, the female herds um, that we we catch live and truck to other branches and other farms. But in a year like this, where the whole country is in a drought, nobody's buying animals. Um, so the only option left then to to keep your numbers in, under control is basically culling, the meat production. 
And w- just explain for people who have maybe never been here why it's so important to keep numbers under control in terms of their impact on the environment. So Namibia is a semi-arid country. So we, we're basically bordering on, on two deserts. So it's a very fragile um, um, ecosystem. So it, it goes you know, overgrazing and... and um, Getting into a situation where you can't get out of out of a drought situation goes really quick. So you need to really manage your numbers and and be sure that you're understocked. Um, and even then, um, well, in the last few years, historically we would have had one or two years of really dry weather, and we'd have droughts, and you'd feed your animals and you get them through. But since 2013, we've had below average rainfall every year, um, of which we've had three severe droughts since 2013. So um, that's, that's, another, that's another thing that's, uh, that's um, something that we need to adapt to now is uh, are we going to be getting better, better rainy seasons in the next few years or is this something that we will have to adapt to now? And of course with that our carrying capacity is way down. Um, so over, over over the last seven years, we've probably reduced our our herd by about um, six thousand animals. Hmm. Yeah, people don't often consider the impact of the game that they're seeing when they come on safari, like a photographic safari to um, to Africa. Look at Kruger, probably the one name that most people will, will know. Obviously, over in, in South Africa, as a, a destination to to go and see a national park and see all the game. But seeing all of that game there, there very often isn't appreciation of just how much impact they're having. I mean, elephants is a good a good case in point in Kruger. I mean, they have, you speak to most people who know, they will tell you that there's too many elephants in Kruger and they're having a detrimental impact on the environment and the other species that rely on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, elephant is a is a is a good one is a good example in Kruger, and, and that's you know the the elephant in Kruger is a hot topic because as as soon as anybody talks about culling elephant, it's um, you know it blows up and up and, in arms yeah. in the papers. How could you do that? And um, but this is this is a discussion that we really need to sit down, and have an honest discussion, and say, well, we need to work out a plan now, otherwise um, that that ecosystem is just going to be decimated. And, and that's that's a very real prospect, isn't it? This oh, is a, this yeah, is no definitely. Bullshit. This is we need to have non-emotional discussions about this topic. Exactly, and that's that's a problem. If it you know, regardless if it's the hunting the hunting discussion or the trophy hunting discussion, the culling discussion, the the legalization of rhino horn discussion, we need to have honest discussions which without emotion because as soon as emotion as emotion gets pulled into it, then then it, it just I mean then it's there's no use in having that discussion at all. And as far as I understand, Kruger at the moment, the plan on the elephant as well, just to let nature take its course. Um, well, it, I mean, it's it's all it's it's uh, at the moment it still looks fine, but uh, I don't I don't want to know what it's going to look ten like years. in the next ten years from now. Yeah, because they are a very destructive animal. They are, and I mean, it's it's and with, they consume a lot. <laughs> they consume a lot, and with, with any species, I mean, if you if you overstock a certain area with a certain species. It's it gets to a point where it, it can't. And it doesn't have to be elephant. It could be anything. It, 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 yeah. it could be anything. You know, if you, if you I mean if you have a paddock and you leave a bunch of of cows in there, 
after a while, if you just leave them to to breed on, after a while, that paddock's going to be too small for them. And if there's no predation or nobody managing it, and a lot of times when we have these discussions, we have people that are, they, they call themselves purists or idealists. And their idea of, of Africa is this big, wide, open expanse where everything can move around freely and go wherever it wants. And, and well, yes, that used to be Africa. And yes, back then you could just leave everything to a natural cycle because if it was dry in one area, the game could move and go to another area where it had rained um, and and that was how the natural cycles work but since man came in and and we built roads and cities and uh, you know put down farms for irrigation and uh, cattle farms so a large amount of the game that that was found in Namibia and well in South Africa parts of South Africa as well was actually pushed out by cattle ranching <laughs> um, because back then the People game forget that yeah and the, the game didn't have value so well yeah we'll just shoot all the game push it out and put cattle on there and in the in the late 1700s early 1800s there was buffalo Cape buffalo over the whole country there was records of buffalo down on the orange river and well cattle came in and 90% of the buffalo in namibia died because of rinderpest so you know people people forget that that it's yeah because of man and and what we've brought we've we've actually put the game and wildlife into these small isolated pockets so Which we call parks yeah exactly yeah. so but the game doesn't know that the game yeah <laughs> um so this whole idea of this idealistic um free open plains it it it's it's not feasible anymore and we we just have these pockets of game left and that's why we need to manage them because they can't move away anymore um because as soon as they start moving they'll run into a barrier of of people and, and conflict arises exactly and uh, for a lot of those people um, the game moving up there will just be a source of protein source of meat hmm. yeah it's hard to know how to um, especially with with species like that these massive you know, incredibly majestic charismatic animals which is and that is the problem because it it, it riles up so much emotion in people it, it, it's quite hard to work out how to have those discussions in a kind of calm manner because it's it seems to me certainly through my lifetime that it's been almost impossible to do that yeah no, it definitely has and and it it's um what i found is that with people uh, if you if you give them a few different options so you you say well the one option is we have to call these animals or we have to hunt them to bring down the number or we can do this and this and then you'd start looking at the other options and usually the other options aren't very feasible because they it just costs too much um so if you look at some of the smaller parks in south africa that have problems with elephants as well where they're over overpopulated with elephants there are options of moving those elephants either to Mozambique or other parks in Africa, but it it just catching and loading a single elephant on a truck runs you about forty thousand rand, um, and then you still have to do the transport. So if you're going to relocate a herd of a hundred elephant, it it costs you a hell of a lot of money. And usually, when we have these discussions, by the time you get to there, then well, everybody kind of disappears and especially uh, because they're trying to work out who's going to pay for it. Exactly. Yeah. So so there was uh, about. Three, four years ago, um, the Namibian government got a lot of flack for um, black rhino bull that they had put up on auction at the Dallas Safari Club. To Corey Norton, Corey Norton bought it. Exactly. Yeah. And um, there were protesters outside screaming and going on and everything. So 
the bull that was on auction that was to be hunted is an old bull that was beyond his reproducing age. So it's an old animal that would have just been taken out and that money would go straight to the government, go back straight into conservation. And, well, you had all the antis protesting and so forth, but um, it was an open auction. Anybody could have bought it. So if the people were so so much against the hunting of this certain specific animal, well, why don't they just buy it and let it die a natural death? That money could have gone into... The, the basic idea behind selling this animal in the auction is so that the government can get, could get money to put into anti-poaching and, and saving the rest of the species. And it's like my dad said, it's not the one you take out, it's the ones you leave behind. But again, when it comes to actually putting money where your mouth is... It's a different story. Yeah. And the interesting thing with the black rhino, as you were explaining to me, I didn't know this, is that all the black rhino in Namibia are property of the government. Exactly. Even if they're on private, uh, privately owned yeah. farms. Yeah. How, how does that work and when did that happen? Um, the first ones, um, so, so the Namibian um, uh, system of, with the black rhino, it's called a custodianship program. So uh, all the black rhino belong to the government and they put them out on private farms um, for the private owners to, to basically look after. But as a private owner, you're getting nothing out of the rhino. You just look after it. So it has a tourism sure. value, yeah. potentially. Yeah, it has a tourism value, but on the on the black rhino, they, they're so skittish. I was about to say, they, if you can ever see them. If you can ever see them. It's, <laughs> I've uh, seen, the only thing I've seen of the black rhino so far has been their prints yeah. <laughs> on the road. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's um, and the it it it's, it was a one it, it is a wonderful concept and it's really pushed the the black rhino numbers in Namibia the the population has has grown tremendously so the government came up with this idea in uh, I think the first rhinos we got was were in ninety five and they had basically run out of space for black rhino in in the national parks and. Um, so we were, I think, the first or the second farm to actually get black rhino back then, and um, it's just they have they have a whole bunch of custodians, and the numbers of black rhino have just gone through the roof. And unfortunately, now we've seen that the the poaching wave of rhino that that's that picked up in two thousand nine in South Africa and has really gone through the roof has has spilled over into Namibia as well. And uh, for a lot of the farms that are custodians of black rhino, they because they're they're not making anything out of the rhino, they don't really have extra funds to put into anti-poaching programs, um, and that of course then is an easy target for poachers. And uh, so these farms are being being targeted, and a lot of those rhino are being poached. And this is a, another thing that a lot of people outside of Africa don't realize is that without investment in activities like. Uh, anti-poaching, there just simply won't be that game anymore because most of the land is owned privately, and so that has to be funded privately. Exactly. There's nobody helping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you look at the at the big uh, wildlife foundations and so forth, and um, yes, they do get a lot of funding, and it, it goes to to the governments, but that's all used for for the parks. And if it's on private land, commercially owned land, then you pretty much have to do it yourself. But that is most of the land. That, that's most of the <laughs> land. So it's interesting in Namibia, actually, um, if if I don't quote me on this, but if I remember correctly, about um, 80% of wildlife in Namibia is on privately owned land. 
and um, of the the remaining twenty percent, twelve percent of that is in one park in Namibia. That's in the Etosha Park. So, um, and uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's sometimes hard for us to have to go and, and negotiate and always have to get paperwork and permits and stuff from uh, from government. But then, if you look at it, you know, private owners are looking after eighty percent of the wildlife in this country. It's crazy to think that because it's not. I don't think that's the perception. I think when people think of Africa, they just think of this wild place where the wildlife roams. And it belongs to the country, which it does, but it's looked after by the individual more often than not. Exactly, exactly, and it's um, and it's, it's exactly like you said. You know that that knowledge and that education isn't there, and and that's what people base their uh, their discussions on and their thoughts on, and and they don't know the background. They don't know that the custodians of these animals are private people. I think we we're going to have to take this inside before we can't hear ourselves through the mic anymore let's see if we can I'll tell you what, i'm just going to stop this okay that's better we are out of the wind now i wanted to backtrack just a, a little bit and talk about um the game farming industry which uh, i'm guessing probably evolved off the back of the ability to to capture game which you were telling us the history of that how did the how did that industry and the evolution of the industry help game across Namibia and, and South Africa and the, the other African countries? Because there were, you don't have to go back that far in history, like you were saying, especially with the, the increase in agriculture and cattle farms and sheep farms, where there actually wasn't really that much game around anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, and and the the ability to catch and move large amount of animals actually it, it, that was actually the the start of everything, and then from there it just it's it snowballed. So back then, when a cattle rancher had, well, his cattle, and when the, the whole hunting industry started taking off, um, you know, people didn't have game to offer to hunters. And so if you take a, somebody with a, with a farm somewhere far off from one of the main routes, nobody's going to go there for no tourist is going to go there because it's on, on the tourism side usually people want to see as many different places as possible in as few days as possible but a hunter will go to these far-flung places if he if there's a species that he can go and, and, and collect there um, and with the with the advent of catching large amount of animals and being able to relocate them to all these different farms, that's actually where the whole private hunting industry really took off. Because now a guy with a farm that's down far in the south of Namibia, away from everything else, can actually stock his farm and open a hunting business and become an outfitter. And... Um, if the the animals have value and he can keep them on his farm and uh, so you know it it just it picked up from there and and just went crazy so it was a way where so areas that historically in the past would have had whatever the natural carrying capacity of game was which was then gone because now a lot of people were farming and so the game was competition for food and and grazing and disease and all the rest of it so it was gone and now the, it was a situation where, well, hold on a second, there's another 
economic alternative. In fact, it might even be more profitable than the farming. Exactly. So that was the incentive, I'm assuming. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, so the farmers are sitting on commercial land, so they want to try and get as much per hectare out of that land. And uh, in the beginning, nobody cared about game, so it was when, when cattle came in and, you know, it was all about beef. And then when when the hunting industry started and game had a value, um, it was more profitable to hold game than cattle. And that's where the, it went back to game farms and hunting farms. And um, then uh, the, the breeding industry really picked up as well. And it's, it's um, the, the breeding industry of game in South Africa and Namibia has, has really developed into a stud breeding market as well, where you, you know, the, especially on, the, on the, the high value and rare animals, like if you look at your roan and your sable and um, uh, Lechwe, Livingston, Eland, um, where the the breeding market has become or for a while was so profitable that you really could make more off of the breeding than you could do of hunting or cattle or anything else on that land um the economies of of both namibia and south africa are very down at the moment so the lot of the prices have slumped but if you look at the at the wildlife and wildlife ranching there are four main pillars it's hunting tourism um live sales and breeding and then meat and byproducts and so you see more and more people are going and and to fulfill this whole value chain um, so the hunting was something that most people were already doing and the breeding has come into it now that the breeding prices are down um, we've we've been doing it for a while but you see more and more people going into it is that they're uh, um, really producing their own meat products instead of just selling it to to uh, butcheries and um, and that's something you do here yes yes that's what we do here as well um and then on on the meat uh, well it's, it's classified as meat and byproducts so you know tanning skins or selling bones and horns and all that what's interesting with that is that it's very clear with this example that without having a real value on game, on, on wildlife, there is an alternative which will replace it. Yeah, exactly. And that is what happened historically. Exactly. And fortunately, it's kind of come full circle, or it seems like that. And yeah. in many instances, the game now has a place because it has a value and it has a use through not just hunting, through other uses as well, but that is a major component of it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there there's always there will always be the tourism value to the animals, but we need to be realistic in saying that the tourism value you can only you can only use that in certain places. The tourist isn't going to go and visit every square inch of the country to see the same animal. No. Um, and you need as as long as we can keep value on wildlife and game in those areas where a tourist isn't going to come, we're going to we're going to save those species. And in the end, it goes about having as many animals of a certain species as we can you know, to make sure that we have... As a whole the, across uh, all the countries. As, as a, yeah, exactly. So we can have the biggest genetic diversity of that species. And the best example to me is always Kenya. You know, when they closed hunting in, in 77, since then they've lost 80% of their wildlife. And yes, they have huge tourist value, but again, the tourist value is only in certain parks. And yeah, it's outside, a small number of game. Exactly. And outside of those parks, there, there is absolutely no value to the game, and that's why it's disappeared. Because, and it's mainly because of cattle, isn't it? Exactly, cattle. So because there's no value to the game, it's why is somebody going to keep game if he can run cattle on that land? 
So um, so we really need to make sure that if, if the saying around here is if it if it pays it stays, and the 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 really sad prospect at the moment is that rhino in Africa have no value whatsoever. John Hume had an auction a few few weeks ago where there wasn't a single bid on female rhino, which, and it's, it's like you, you were saying, it actually gives them a negative value because you still need the anti-poaching teams to, to look after them, but they you can't sell them because nobody wants them because of the risk that you're bringing onto your property of poachers coming and poaching them. And just for context, John Hume, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the largest owner of rhino in the world? Largest private rhino in the world. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he has a bit over 1,700 rhino at the moment, yeah. white rhino. It's a colossal amount. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go there quite a few years ago, um, but there was about half that amount when I was there. Uh, and he, by virtue of that, and by virtue of the dehorning program that he has uh, undertaken over many, many years, I think he probably also has the largest or one of the largest stocks of rhino horn currently sitting locked up somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's and and he's been fighting for it for a long time, and and uh, we're pushing for it in Namibia very hard as well, is for the legalization of rhino horn, and um, if you if you look at it. Um, you know, you have you have consumptive, non-consumptive use. So basically, non-consumptive use is tourism, just looking at the animals, and taking pictures. Consumptive use is whatever, you, whenever you take something off of the animal to use it. And in all the cases, consumptive use is basically you kill the animal, you use the meat, you use the skin, you sell the trophy. And the rhino is the only animal that you can do have consumptive use without killing the animal. So you can cut the horn off. Um, and the animal still stays alive. And the horn is basically just keratin, like fingernails. So what a lot of people don't know is that it actually grows back. So average rhino horn would grow back by a kilogram a year about. So that's where we're pushing and saying, well, let's legalize it. Um, we've had 40, about once 42 years now of the ban on the trade in rhino horn. And in these 40 years, Africa has lost 40,000 rhino. So a lot of times we'd have this discussion and people would be against legalization of trade and they say, well, we'll win the fight, we'll win the fight. Well, We're we, not winning the fight. We've been losing the fight for the last 40 years. Africa has about 20,000 rhino left collectively, black and white together. What are the chances that we've already lost 40,000? Where's the turnaround going to come? If we if we look at it uh, in the next 15 or 20 years at this rate, we're still losing 1,000 rhinos a year. Even though... I mean, Kruger's anti-poaching team is basically a little military. They have firefights every day with poachers, and still there's poaching happening. Um, so if 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 we look at it, there's a, we need to find another solution because more of the same will probably mean more of the same. Exactly, exactly. It's such a divisive discussion, the rhino horn trade, and yet. To me, and I've always, pretty much always thought this ever since it's been posed, I've been pro rhino horn trade. Now, that doesn't mean that I think it's an ideal scenario. There should be no need to dehorn rhino. There should be no need for a rhino horn trade in existence at all. But sadly, the world that we live in, through largely education, I believe, to the countries and the people who want to consume it. And as you've just said, it's basically your fingernail. So we know that it has absolutely no properties for any kind of medicinal purposes, although there are some people that use it for carving and stuff as well, which is slightly different. 
Um, but the bottom line is that there is a demand for it. And it's a demand that at the moment we haven't been able to curb. And maybe in the very, very long term, we can re-educate and make people understand that the rhino horn really belongs on the rhino and not in your hands. Um, certainly not the way that it's being taken right now. But in the meantime, just like you said, we need to find another solution so that in 20 years' time, we actually have rhino left. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's um, like you said, in, in the long term, education definitely is the goal because there, there absolutely shouldn't be a need to take the, the horn off of the rhino. So the big market for rhino horn is, is obviously Asia, a little bit in, in the Middle East, but the big market is Asia. And I mean, if you look at, if you look at let's, let's take China, for example, the middle class in China is 350 million people who have, well, they don't have internet to the, or access to global internet. No, a lot of so, it's locked down. So how are you going to start with that education process? Um, I mean, that's that, that, and that's the middle class, just the middle class with money to, to spend now. And that's the whole population of the USA. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. and if you look at it, uh, you know, um, I mean, some traditional medicine has even been approved by the World Health Organization. And if you if you look at the Chinese tradition and and how far back it goes, to try and convince them otherwise is almost like trying to convince a Christian not to believe in in, in Christianity. Yeah, it's 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 There's not it's, much difference. It's a great comparison, though. And um, so it's it's a long fight. I mean, it would be great if if they'd stop using rhino horn tomorrow, but it's it's not going to happen overnight. And unfortunately, we don't have the rhino numbers anymore to to wait another hundred years until until everybody catches up and everybody says, "Well, oh, yeah, it is just fingernail." I mean, if there was a if there was a, a regulated trade in rhino horn you would have a situation where the rhino would all of a sudden overnight be worth more alive than it is dead. Exactly. Whereas right now it's worth more dead. Exactly. Because, because, of, because it's not farmed, because yeah. in order for uh, people to get their access on rhino horn, it has to be poached. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's another argument that when we're having this legal um, trade discussion is where people are, that are against it, will, they always say, well you're going to have you know rhino farming will start and it'll just be rhinos will be kept in, in small pens and it'll be like you know like keeping chicken, chicken, farming, chicken yeah. farming and well my answer to that is that's an ethical debate that we can have when that when we get to that point at the moment we are losing the battle and we just need to do something so we stop losing rhino and if we have stabilized the rhino numbers and aren't losing them, then we can start this discussion about how do we keep them. And and another thing is what people don't realize is rhinos die sometime of old age as well. <laughs> yeah. And whenever a rhino dies, the horns are collected and they're put in storage. So between South Africa and Namibia and some of the other um, Southern Africa countries, you have about 40 tons of rhino horn just lying in storage, government storage. So that equates about 8,000 rhinos. So we're losing about 1,000 rhinos a year now. So if we could just even legalize the... And, and all those horns have... DNA samples have been taken, they've been chipped, they've been isocoded. So even if we just say, well, let's put all the horns of dead rhino on the market, um, that would already serve the market for eight years. 
That current race. And the other the other aspect of it that we haven't talked about is that it's perfectly feasible that if a trade of horn was opened up, an element of that could be set aside not just for um, anti-poaching efforts for private individuals, but the trade itself could help fund further conservation quite easily. Exactly. And um, so on the black market at the moment in in Asia, a kilogram of rhino horn sells for about 60,000 US dollars. So if you take a rural community in in Namibia or any African country for that matter that have cattle now and are doing subsistence farming of cattle well they they are using the grazing there basically for for cattle which could just as well be used for for white rhino if you give that community 10 rhino they could make more off of just the horn that is harvested so and the horn off of rhino isn't harvested every year you usually leave them two to three years and then you would cut the horn um, and so they would make probably 50 fold more out of keeping 10 rhino than running the cattle that they do on that land for subsistence purposes and if they could make that amount of money off of those rhino they protect them with their lives and they'll probably have less impact on the environment. Exactly, because yeah. it's a species that actually belongs there. Exactly, and it's it's uh, yeah, instead of uh, overgrazing that land with cattle to try and make a, make a, a living, you know, you'll have less animals on that land, and they'll be better protected. And you know, if as as soon as as people or farmers can can get some money out of that horn, they can put in the best anti poaching teams that that money can buy and it's like we were talking earlier on with this custodianship program with a lot of the places a lot of the custodians don't have the extra extra money to put in anti-poaching teams but if the sale of horn would be legal that money would go straight into anti-poaching and it would it would so basically if you look at the at the supply chain to asia asia of of rhino horn you have a, a a few different links. So the first link is the guy on the ground that goes and physically shoots a rhino, cuts off the horn. Then that goes to the first transporter, then to the smuggler taking it across borders, and then finally to the dealer in in Asia. And the dealer pays 60,000 US per kilo of horn. But down that supply chain, everybody's taking a cut. So the dealer would get it, he'd carve the horn. Um, so the most valuable part of the horn is actually the inside of the horn, which is, is darker. And then the outside, which is lighter in color, they um, and which they cut off as shavings, they actually sell as medicinal for medicinal purposes. But that light horn, they go and cut again with buffalo horn. Um, so they're it's like actually, a drug dealer. Like a drug dealer. Yeah. Um, but anyway, his average resale price of carved and horn and the cut horn and all that is about, if you total it and you take an average, about 180,000 US a kilo. So that's more than, than anything, cocaine, gold, diamonds, whatever you can think of. It's crazy because it doesn't even do anything for you. At least cocaine I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so the whole idea behind this legalization is if the dealer that buys in China for 60K can buy directly from the farmer for... So John Hume did this this calculation. So he worked his anti-poaching costs, his um, feeding costs and all that into that. And, and they worked it back into 
kilogram of rhino horn. Yeah. So cost price for him per kilogram of rhino horn is about 5,000 US. That's just to, to break even with all the anti-poaching work he's doing. Um, so if he were to say make a profit of 100% on that, you're looking at 10,000 US. If you can supply the dealer in China for 10,000 US, where he's at the moment paying 60,000 per kilo, he's going to make, he's sell, still going to sell the horn for the same price. Yeah. But he's going to buy it for 50k cheaper than what he's buying it at the moment. So he's going to use the legal route. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because he's making more money out of it. And then it isn't worth worth it for the poacher anymore to put his life at risk for for nothing. nothing yeah. um, so you cut that whole chain out and that's that's what we're pushing for. Where's the advancement of that being held up? Is it... Because my, my experience of issues in Africa, whether it be trophy hunting, if you want to call it that, or the export of ivory or uh, lion trophies or indeed rhino horn, is that it's other parts of the world making rules and regulations that mean that Africa can't govern itself. Is, is that the case of rhino horn or it, is, it, it, is there actually an internal discussion it, as well that's causing issues? No, it's, it's, it's exactly the same as, as with the, all the others. And and because you you have you have certain animal rights groups and organizations that are totally against any consumptive use and with the rhino even though the rhino stays alive they're still against it because it's consumptive use and unfortunately there's such a big pressure from them at at the the you know at CITES um, that whenever stuff like this comes up and it's you know it's it's actually it 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 comes down it comes back down to politics so CITES the body that needs to regulate all this there there's so much pressure on them well not on them but on the countries voting at at the the meetings at the COP meetings because all the countries are represented aren't they exactly so everyone has a say in a and they they vote on changes to the the regulations of CITES, which is just for people who don't know, you probably can probably explain this better than I. But it's basically to do with import and export of animal products. Yeah, yeah. Societies is a, is a, um, it's on the the Council on the Trade of Endangered Species and Animals, um, and these animal rights groups um, they with all their funding they push so much at CITES to stop any any proposals whatsoever for consumptive use be it hunting or trade or whatsoever and they they have so much money that they actually go and and buy the votes of african countries bribery so, and corruption yeah so if you look at it um between South Africa, Namibia, and uh, Zimbabwe, have probably ninety-five percent of the world's rhino population. However, any country that's a signatory to CITES with zero rhino in that country whatsoever can go and vote on rhino issues. And so, just as an example, there was a there was a proposal into CITES um, to to uplist the elephant from. Um, South Africa and Botswana, I believe, to CITES one, and that would basically stop a lot of the trophy hunting of elephant. Now, this proposal was put in by Kenya, um, a bunch of West African countries that don't even have elephant anymore. They used to. Yeah. Yeah. And another another country on on this um, proposal that's pushing for it is Syria. Uh, what does Syria have to do with 
with elephant issues. Um, but because Kenya is totally anti-hunting, they get so much funding from the animal rights groups and the anti-hunting groups that whatever these groups want to put in as a proposal to CITES, they do Kenya will do it on their behalf. And this is where where we get into that, you know, this organization that should be looking after the well-being of, of the animals is basically come down to politics and come down to wherever the animal rights groups can throw their money at. We've been visited by the family. <laughs> Should I get another headset so that uh, Jan can join in? <laughs> It'll, uh, interesting to hear his, his thought on the discussion. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be too long before he's going to have input on it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't seem to make much sense, that does it? No, it's it's um, you know I think and. And we get the feeling in in African countries that it's like you know usually when you when you you go overseas that people kind of talk talk down on Africa and and it's like with this well Africa doesn't know how to manage their wildlife anyway so we'll have to make the decisions for them. But um, if you look at Namibia and South Africa with with how these two countries have been able to grow their wildlife numbers and keep their animals safe and um, if you, I mean, if you take the whole of Africa, if we take rhino as an example now, of the 23 range states that there used to be, there are only 11 of the states that still have rhino. If you take Uganda, they only have nine rhino in the whole country. Um, I mean, Kenya just lost another subspecies. Well, basically, there are two animals of the northern white rhino still left. Um, and South Africa and Namibia have been the only countries where there's really been tremendous growth in these species. So you'd expect the rest of the world to look at them and say, wow. What a great well, success. Yeah. How are you doing it? Let's let's copy that. But instead of that, we're just getting pressure on it because it comes back down to if it pays, it stays. If, it's, if you have consumptive utilization, the animal has value and everybody's going to look after it. And the great challenge that we face is how do we convince what is essentially the rest of the world, <laughs> um, the, there is a situation where you have to remove maybe what your personal beliefs are to what makes logical sense. Exactly, and, that, and that's exactly what you said now. We have to convince the rest of the world, and at the moment with the internet and, and uh, social media, and, and, and you know, everybody has a say. Everybody puts in their opinion, and unfortunately, when it comes to these matters, which are which are a little controversial, and it's usually the emotional opinion that comes out first. And uh, for somebody that doesn't have a background in in hunting or in in you know managing wildlife or game, um, for them, usually the the first emotional. Um, opinion or, or the the first thought that comes into their mind is no just just stop it and there's a, there was an interesting study done um and it, it's called the dunning kruger effect and this basically plots confidence in a certain subject against experience in that subject and what they found is that the people with the least experience in a certain topic will talk about it with the most confidence and then after that, as people gain experience in a subject, they'll actually lose confidence because they, they realize, oh, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. 
And then as in the end, when they gain experience, then they gain confidence again. But unfortunately, the people with the most experience are few and far between. And the people that talk with the most confidence have the least experience and there are millions of these people. Yeah. It's like we were discussing the other day that, and I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I've said this on the podcast before, is when we're trying to make really important decisions of which wildlife management is one of many different things that happen in the world. It's not it's not the only thing that's going on, although you would think so if you listen to this podcast. Um, it, it's silly that we put equal weight on everybody's opinion when everybody's experience is not the same. Exactly. And and that you know, that comes down to what we just said with, with South Africa and Namibia having this tremendous growth in wildlife, you'd expect people to say, Okay, well, they must be doing it right. Let's let's do what they do. But yeah, it uh, unfortunately people who, who don't even own a single wild animal might have a cat and a dog are pushing their opinions. Now to change the subject uh, just slightly, um to a really positive and intriguing story that you're involved in and that is uh, the relocation of excess elephants that you have to a new national park in the Congo. Yes. I mean when you told me about that that was like something I didn't think things like that happened anymore. <laughs> that, that felt like it was 60 years ago like back when your dad was doing it. Yeah. No, this How is did a, that come this, about? Um, well the the so, so to start off with, for people that don't know, there, there are two Congos. There's Congo Brazzaville, which is a, a pretty small country. And then there's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC, which used to be Zaire. And the previous president of the Congo, uh, Joseph Kabila, um, he considers himself, well, a conservationist. So he's really pushing for, for uh, opening new parks and, and giving back to wildlife. Um, so he proclaimed a new park not far from Kinshasa, about 50 kilometers uh, east of Kinshasa. And then, of course, there's no game left there whatsoever because with all the civil wars and, and no tourism, no hunting, the, the game, the only value they had was, was meat. So it, everything just got poached as for meat. Um, so they had to relocate and find animals in other countries. And Namibia was, was one of the options. And one of the game dealers in Namibia got the contract to, to move up a lot of animals. So in the last two years, they've, they've moved up um, over a thousand antelope species. Or, well, a thousand animals, a bunch of antelope species. Um, and then they came to us and uh, because we have so many elephants, um, asked us if, if uh, they could get I'm a bunch just, of elephants. I'm going to pause you one sec because uh, my steady cam sitting on the table and young Jan is, uh, might be grabbing. I'm going to pause you one sec because my steady cam my steady camp's safe. It's in my hands. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So um, carry on, carry on. Um, yeah, so basically, we we at the moment have about 40 elephants, which is right on our carrying capacity. So we'd really like to to take the number down a bit. And uh, fortunately for us, this, uh, this option came up of uh, being able to move them to the Congo. Um, it's uh, it's uh, quite a logistics nightmare. Um, so they will actually will catch them here. Then they'll go by road to Walfish Bay, which is the local port. 
then by the, they'll get loaded on a boat and it's a four-day boat trip up to the Congo River and then they go up the Congo River for for a piece, get offloaded and then it's about another six-hour journey by road um, and getting everything planned, uh, the, the capture and the boat and the the special crates we need and the low bit trucks it's uh, so we've it's it's been postponed a few times but as it looks now hopefully it'll be the beginning of may so frustrating for me because i think i'm gonna miss it by like a week now <laughs> <laughs> oh, you you actually went there yourself i mean obviously you were asked to be in uh, the opportunity came up but you wanted to go and see it for yourself and yeah you went up there last year and and what's nice with um with the people managing the park um because they obviously have no background in in the species that they're taking up is that they they are taking people up to the park and looking for advice on on how to handle these animals is the park fit for these animals are the fences right and so that's that's how I got to go up is they wanted me to come and inspect the fence and the vegetation and, and all that and it was uh, that was a pretty interesting trip I, I would have never for the life of me thought that I would be going to the DRC mm. um, and you showed me some uh, pictures what a place yeah Kinshasa you land in Kinshasa and that's that's like landing in a on a movie set it's uh, so Kinshasa is about 15 million people, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's I don't know how to explain to uh, explain it's, it. For anybody, I saw a few pictures and a few videos um, from Alex, and for anyone who's been to like New Delhi in India, it kind of had the same vibe. But when I was looking at the videos, I was thinking that kind of reminds me of New Delhi. So it had that vibe of that bustle of people and the dust, and I'm sure probably that sort of distinct smell and wood that wood smoke that seems to be everywhere because that's how everyone cooks. Um, but once you got out of the city, it will. It just looked like paradise. It is. It's. It's just. It's. It's. Just green all over, and you see banana trees just growing wild, and and papayas, and uh, there's. Um, so we we on the first day we were there, we were checking all the the fences on the park, and uh, well, we, they didn't plan in lunch for us. So the guy that was driving us, well, we we just we stopped along the fence, and just outside the fence, there was a little settlement there. And, um, well, he just talked to them and within five minutes he had a bunch of wild growing potatoes and a, and a pineapple for us. So the pineapples just grow wild there. And, um, it's, uh, no, it's, it's crazy. It's, um, that country is so fertile. Um, it was just lush, lush, lush green. I yeah. couldn't believe how much water there was. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's water all over, and uh, those these elephants won't know what hit them. They'll just stand in one spot all day and feed. <laughs> so that uh, process hopefully taking place next month. Tell me what that's like catching elephants and describe it for people who have never seen it. I mean, a lot of people will have seen elephants on TV, but never even had the opportunity to see them face to face. Yeah. Yeah, so elephant capture is uh, is not as easy as it is with uh, with antelope and other species because you're working with an animal that's that's 5 to 6 tons. Um, so you tranquilize the animal, it goes down, um, then you have trucks with cranes that come in, pick it up. Then um, you you pull the animal into a crate, a very big steel crate, which is the, the crate where they wake up in. So elephants need a lot of room to stand up in when they're lying flat on their side. And this, that's why you need the special they crate. they kind of rock, don't they? Exactly. So um, you close this crate, you wake them up, and then once they're standing and they're, they're, they're fully awake, um, you pull another crate along. Um, 
next to this, the, the wake-up crate and then you open the doors and then usually they are inquisitive animals so they walk in by themselves into the other crate to go see where they are and what's going on. And the other crates are smaller crates, um, well, narrower. So if they were to lie down flat on their side, um, they, they wouldn't be able to get up. And fortunately, elephants do a lot of sleeping on their feet. So really, if you're transporting them for a few days, they, they can't just stay standard. Um, so um, once they're in this crate, the crates are oversized anyway. They're, they're a lot higher than what... Uh, what you're usually allowed to transport on the road. Um, so you need a special transport permit to transport these big crates and they go on low loaders, low beds. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of heavy machinery and, uh, and a lot of strong drugs to get them down. What a journey that's going to be. I can't wait to hear from you in a few weeks' time to see how the first shipment has gone. I mean, fingers crossed everything goes without a hiccup. and It's going to be amazing I'm sure the people on the ground there will send you the release because you, you're not going up for the. You won't be there when they get released, will you? Um, I'm not not 100 sure yet. Sure. Uh, we might go up. But somebody's um, going to be videoing yeah, the, the releases as definitely. they're going because yeah. that'll be amazing to yeah. see. Yeah. And to have an area there that's being repopulated with game, which, as you said, has literally been decimated through war and and famine, essentially. It, it's incredible to see how. The success of one country's program of hunting and conservation and tourism, just like you were talking about through South Africa and Namibia, is now able to benefit a country that has lost pretty much everything. Exactly. In terms of wildlife. Exactly. And it's and it's um you know, the, the Congo is so lucky that they, they have this person that is willing to put money into that because there is for for him there is not it's not to say that there will be a return out of it so it's basically just private funding from from the the congolese side that's going into to reintroducing this park it's incredible um yeah i'm i was so excited when, when you told me about that because it just seemed like such an incredible story it doesn't even seem like something that's real um so it's going to be yeah it's going to be amazing once that all happens in the the pictures that you show, showed me—it really made me want to visit that part of Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, the the biggest fear I think for people going to that part of Africa is just the, the safety yeah. issue, you know. And I think if if they can start offering trips there where people's safety is guaranteed, then they'll they'll um, because everybody, you know, I, I talk to and say, well, and I was just in the DRC, was like, oh, well, you know, and, and if you if once they realize, well, okay, it was pretty safe everybody wants to go everybody yeah, wants to especially go see if you show them the pictures. yeah exactly yeah. um yeah we've talked about it um a bit while we've been driving around and you've been um you know like last night when you're getting me into rhinos to take pictures about what the the future for hunting is not just here but anywhere in the world and i know it's a, it's a question that's posed to me quite a bit and it's posed to you and you pose to, to people, you know, will we, will we have hunting in 10, 20, 30 years time? What is your evaluation of that and your concerns? 
I think I think we'll we'll always have the traditional hunting and the the local hunting. So here we call it boltong hunting, which is basically just going out and father taking his son out to go and shoot an animal and and fill the freezer. And I mean, pretty much the same as you have in the U.S. You know, a lot of people just go out to for shoot themselves for themselves. Friends. Yeah. So I think that'll always be there, but international trophy hunting. I'm I'm I don't know what the future of that is. And uh, there's a you know there's so much pressure on trophy hunting, and you see it in the newspapers only almost on a weekly basis here of of animal rights groups just just bashing trophy Size hunters and, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think because of all that pressure, I don't really know what the what the the future of of trophy hunting is. Um, but we as an industry also we we need to sit down and have an honest discussion about um what what do we want the industry to to because i mean we can't deny that some parts of the industry have morphed into basically just playing out if the people will do anything for the money if a if a if a trophy hunter offers enough money, they'll do anything for it. And we need to get back into to saying, well, we have – it needs to be done right. There needs, it needs to be to sort be of done. a core ethic and value around uh, it. Exactly. And the the associations that the that all the governments of the countries as well as the hunting associations need to take really strict control of that. Because the biggest problem we have is that the picture that goes out and gets seen by the general public and these anti-hunting groups are usually the hunts that aren't done the right way and the practices that aren't done right. And that then just makes it bad for everybody else. And um, if if we can show the world that it is self-regulating and that it is done in a in a ethical and and managed way, then nobody can nobody can argue against it. If the only hunting that was left is it just focused solely on Africa, if the only hunting that was left was the hunting for people who live locally, the, the bulldog hunting, as you as you call it, uh, for meat. I don't believe that the value of the game would be there, and this goes back to the very to the start of our discussion when we begun the podcast. Was that the reason why there's been uh, the success is as it's been in these countries is because there is a, a real value on having large numbers of, of game, and most of that value is not in the carcass value of it. That's a byproduct of other activities. Exactly. So would that mean that you might see less places with game on it and less game on those places? Definitely. Um, so I think the the hunting operations that are in areas where they could transition into tourism would do that. But like we were saying earlier, you know, the tourist isn't going to go off the beaten track to see the same animal that he could see on an easy route. And for those areas, definitely, I think um, if the if the international trophy hunting would would stop, then those areas would revert back into into cattle ranching or crop production, um, because the the game wouldn't have the value that they could uh, then get off of it from from what they do with cattle, because then the only value the game has was its meat value, and of course, in uh, a species like like cattle that's been you know bred for meat production was is easier to do than than keeping game on that property so um we'd uh, we'd it it would it would basically go back to what 
Kenya is like now with certain these pockets of, of animals, which are basically the parks, and the rest would then all be cattle, cattle land. That's not a future that I think anybody wants to see. Not really. If and you, yet they let it happen in Kenya. And there seems to be a, certainly a bit of a denial about that country in terms of its wildlife management. I think from the outside, and part of the, the, one of the reasons for this is the way that uh, TV programs are made, is they very often go there. They go to Kenya, they're inside the parks. It looks amazing and outstanding. But that's such a small area relative to the entire country, but it gives a false perception of the reality there. Exactly, exactly, and that's and that's what you know. Like we were saying a little earlier, um, with the with the tourism industry, you don't really need a lot of animals. <laughs> you can have five animals of every species, and and uh, it's, I mean, you see it in in, in Kenya and, and Tanzania and Kruger. If you there's a pride of lions somewhere within. 10 minutes you have 50 cars standing it's, around them it's and, insane um, so you just need one pride of lions you know so um, the I mean the tourism value will always be there and these pockets of animals will always be there but isn't isn't the goal of conservation to increase numbers and species yeah in a, in a balanced and sustainable manner yep. and not just inside a small park exactly when I say small, these parks are huge, but small relative to the landmass. Exactly. Just to clarify that, because I know somebody will pick me up on it. It's not small, they're bigger than Scotland. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's one other thing that you've just prompted me that I wanted to ask you about, because I, amongst many other aspects of being here, I've been blown away by the amount of giraffes I've seen. I don't think in my entire life, uh, you know, the last 15 years of coming to Africa on a regular basis. I think I've seen more giraffe in three days here than the rest of my life put together. I've seen it in the papers a few times at home. Um, it is one of the animals along with probably elephants and lions where if you see a dead picture of one, it makes the newspapers, how can anybody you know, kill this animal? Which is maybe a, another discussion. But in terms of the bigger picture of the species, you hunt here, and yet you have a huge amount of giraffe. They're clearly not endangered here. No, and and it's it's um so you, it's uh, this um giraffe conservation has uh, has also really picked up over the last few years, and uh, you know there's a lot of people getting donor money and that for saving the giraffe and so forth. But what people don't know is that there's so many different subspecies of giraffe, and yes, there are certain subspecies that are endangered. It's just like the black rhino is more endangered than the white rhino. It's still a rhino; it's just two different subspecies. And so the the subspecies we have here, the southern giraffe, is actually not endangered at all. There are thousands and thousands. But this is the species that would historically have belonged here. Yes, yes. Um, and and so this is the same one we have in South Africa, Namibia, um, Botswana. And they they are nowhere near endangered. But again, it's like you were saying, if you see somebody or if, if you post a picture of somebody next to a dead giraffe, it's, um, you'll you'll get so much hate mail that you'll change your email address. Yeah, because you won't be able to open your inbox. Yeah. Um, and it's it's un unfortunately you know the the giraffe, the lion, elephant, zebra are we call them the Disney animals because they've <laughs> they've been um, Disneyfied, know, Disneyfied, yeah. and uh, it's um, people don't really see that well. These animals, if they reach a certain population, also have to be controlled. Yeah. So well, you uh, couldn't not control your giraffe population. Yeah, if, I, I, I mean, couldn't believe how much how well they breed. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and if you if if for us if we weren't to control them, well, it would get to a point where they'd basically just eat themselves out of out of food and die of starvation. So, um, I mean, that's that's always an option, but to me, that isn't really waste. humane. And you know, if you if you can take, it's it's like um, I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about about hunting old rhino bulls, and rhino is also a very sensitive topic. Like, why would you shoot a rhino? I'm like, well, if you live in the city and your dog gets old, why do you euthanize him? Because he's starting to suffer. So me as a private game owner, why am I not allowed to say, well, that animal's getting old, he has no teeth anymore, he's going to die of starvation, and usually dying of starvation in, in, in the bush isn't pretty. When the animals can't get up anymore, they start, usually have small predators coming and starting to eat them live from the back end forward. Um, so it, it, it really isn't pretty. So why not just euthanize the animal? And if you can get somebody who will actually pay to Kind of do, do that it. work. Why not? Know, why not? And that was the, that was basically the case with with Corey Norton. Yeah, with the exactly bar. same idea. Yeah. Um, and then you know, coming back to the giraffe as well. So why leave them to to actually die of starvation if you can manage them and if you if you just leave it to the natural process, you'll have the whole population suffering. Hmm. And you'll have a massive boom and bust of population. Continuing. Exactly. Whereas if you manage it, you can keep the population sustainable. You take certain animals out and it's like what we, we get back to. It's not about the ones you take out. It's about the ones you leave behind. So rather leave a healthy population behind and take out certain numbers. And with giraffe, it's it's become the uh, you have some some trophy value to them but not many people really hunt them um kind of on, on the one side it's because of the the negative um perception, um, perception so do you think of, that's affected it people just don't want to do it because they don't want to be seen to be doing it because uh, they've seen the criticism I, I think that that's grown but but just uh, um, a lot of a lot of clients that that come, we say, well, what about a giraffe? The, guy, the first thing the guy says, oh no, my wife will kill me. <laughs> so, so even just within the hunting community, yeah, it's, it's okay. not really seen as a trophy animal, yeah. you know. Um, and then, so basically, to control the population, we have we have a few options. It's, one is trophy hunting, shooting them, then live sales, um, but. A lot of the people that would buy them live would only then be using them either for for trophy hunting or for the tourism value. And with the tourism value, if you have one, you're fine. And on the hunting side, there are not many people that hunt them. So the live sale market really isn't there. Um, the, the only live market that is there is for people that are restocking new parks. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen that much that we can get enough numbers off solely for that purpose. Um, and then the only option that's left is basically culling them for, for meat production. Mm -hmm. And then I ate some for the first time the other day and it's damn fine meat. Yeah, it's, it's usually when you talk talking to people about, about eating giraffe, the, the first thing is they, they really, you know, they know, how can you eat giraffe? It probably doesn't taste good. But if you look at it, it's a browser. So pretty much like Kudu and Elander over here. And they don't compete with any other species because they the leaves they eat, nothing else gets up there. So they're they're eating the best leaves of of all the animals in Africa and um, their meat has a really good taste to it. Mm. And I think another aspect to it, um, which I bring up quite a lot, but I think it's important to keep repeating myself until I'm told otherwise, is that 
it is efficient and responsible use of the resources because we live in a in a world where we're always conscious of our impact on the planet through the resources that we use even you eat beef then you're having an impact because of all the things that we've already discussed but giraffe belong here they live here they work really well in the environment because they eat the leaves that other animals don't don't eat as you said so why wouldn't you keep them and harvest them at a sustainable level? Exactly. It's like if the, you, if it's you, the responsible option as it, far as I'm concerned. Yeah, exactly. It, because we, it, if we still need protein, yeah. you know, it's, it's a great yeah. source of protein. And you were telling me an interesting stat um, today about the, the, the carcass preparation and the percentage yeah. you get off so, it. So we were part of a, stu a study that, um, that uh, the University of Stellenbosch did into, into giraffe meat. And... Um, they actually found that the dress out weight of giraffe was around 56%, whereas with bees, it's only around 50, 52%. So you actually get more meat off of a giraffe than you do out of a, a, a cow or, a, you know, out of a beef. Um, and yes, it is, it is the responsible thing to do because if you look at the, at the impact that a wild animal has on its environment compared to a domesticated animal, then domestic animals always have much more negative impact on their environment. But uh, because it's one of these Disney-fied animals, it's... People don't like the idea even. Yeah, exactly. I think people even don't... I mean, the, 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 the hunting of them by especially foreign hunters coming here to hunt a species is a, is kind of a separate topic and something that a lot of people struggle to get their head around. But even... The, the notion of culling them and harvesting them, a species like giraffe, I think most people would struggle to get yeah. their head around. Yeah. Just because of the animal that it is. Exactly. And uh, the thing is, we there is very little difference between that and any of the farmed animals. Well, actually, there is a difference. They live a much better life. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the end result is still meat hanging up in the freezer, yeah. except it's done in the most sustainable and, and ethical way possible yeah. with the best animal welfare. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm just going to throw in a quote from a friend of mine that, that has, a, well, he, he's a PH in South Africa. He hunts and he has a sheep farm. And so we we're having a talk one day about hunting. And he says, well, on his, on his sheep farm, 100% of those animals are going to be killed by man for meat. But the game he has on his farm for trophy hunting purposes, only about a quarter of that will ever be killed by man. The rest of that will die under a tree somewhere in the bush. Or be eaten by something. Or be eaten by something. So, you know, we, we, we live in this world where it's fine to slaughter thousands of cattle and sheep and goats and pigs and whatever, and everybody's happy with their burger and their big steak on their plate. But as soon as you start talking about a wild animal, then it's a uh, it's big taboo. Mm. And... Hopefully it's been clear throughout this discussion, but I'm going to emphasize it because I think so many people believe that when foreign hunters come to a place like Africa and they're shooting, you know, whatever it is, maybe a, a kudu or a giraffe, that they're only taking what they want from it. But everything is used, absolutely everything, as I have witnessed over the last couple of days, and particularly today, because we were watching, a, uh, I watched a, a giraffe being processed, 
and you show I couldn't believe how big the leg was. <laughs> the leg was bigger than the most deer that I hang up in my larder at home. Uh, and all that meat is in there. It's being processed. It was being turned into mints. It was being turned into burgers, um, bourgeois, you name it. It was all going through there. So yeah, the hunter might only take home a memento, which is a skull or a skin or whatever it is that they're doing, that they want to take. But ultimately... It is a resource that is then going on to the next phase, which is feeding people. Exactly. And, and in, in Africa, nothing gets wasted. You know, if you look at, at local communities that, that would say have some cattle and they, they, you know, kill a cow, everything gets used. You know, the, the stomach, it's cooked up as tripe. Um, the bones are cooked for soup. Um, every single thing. So on the meat we process here, um, the the you know the stomach the intestines all that gets cooked up as tripe the locals buy it um, stuff like the the kidneys and the lungs and and um, say there's meat that's bloodshot we we mince that and actually sell that as pet mints so so there isn't a single piece on that animal that gets wasted mm. and uh, yeah that is it's so important to to say that because. Even now, there are many, many people that believe that when stuff gets shot, it just gets left. People take the horns or the antlers or whatever it is, and that's it. And yeah. it's just so not. Yeah. I don't know of an instance where that's the case. No, and it's it's um, <laughs> we uh, a few years ago at the SEI show in Vegas, um, a friend of ours actually walked back to the hotel down the strip, and there were a bunch of protesters going on about hunting. And um, he stopped and said, "So, so, what's a, you know, what's the problem?" And they said, "No, well, you know, people just shoot it, shoot the animals, and leave them lying out there." And he said, "No, we actually process everything. We, you know, everything gets used." And then the lady was, "Oh, well, no, but that's fine. But the other guys that are doing it and just leaving it out there," and he said, "Well, nobody does it that way. But there is, yeah, it's, it's just like you said, there's this misconception, and and you know, people think that it's you just shoot it for the of it and just leave it out there well i can only hope that having discussions with people on the ground like you like we're having right now just frank honest discussions uh, we're sitting in your house here there's no agenda i, I just want to know what's happening that's how we conduct all our podcasts i just want to know the truth of what's happening and i can only hope that by having these discussions and putting them out there that people can listen and consume and hopefully make their own judgment on it, that we can come to a, a better consensus about sensible management, of which you know, I believe and will continue to believe until proven otherwise, hunting plays a very, very important role. And I think there is no better example of that than here in Africa. Exactly, and it's it's you know we need to we need to be frank with each other, and we need to I mean as a hunting community we also need to 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 um, own up and say, oh, well, there have been practices that weren't right, but let's change these, and we'll do it the the, the right way, and. Um, you know, my dad's motto was always give back more to nature than you take out. And that's that's what we need to live by. And, you know, if you can you can give back more than than what you take out of nature, then you've been you've been successful. If we could all live by that, the planet would be a very, very different and a very much better place. Exactly. And if sorry, Karen. And for you know, for a lot of people that that 
are out there growing up in cities and and might not have the connection and and don't understand you know the the hunting side or the the utilization side of it um if we could just get them to to just do a little more research and just go in a little deeper and and find out a little more before they start making comments about stuff and and putting ideas out there it would be it would be a, a lot easier discussion to have it would now just to wrap up if people want to find out about your place either the tourism side of it here or the hunting or you can mix both um how can people find out about your place here in namibia okay so um so we have the the tourism side runs under mount etchu safari lodge um that's e-t-j-o e-t-j-o yeah mount etchu and that's that's a big mountain that we were flying over the other day and um on the hunting side we run under jan ulofsa hunting safaris and um yes and uh, we uh we uh if you if you manage the hunting right you can do everything on the same property. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I've been amazed to see that. I, well, I've been here. It's the first time I've been to a place where it's very evident that both is going on, and I've loved seeing that kind of mix of it while I've been here. It's been it's been something new for me. <laughs> so um, you're right; it does work. It does work. You just need to need to the hunting needs to be done the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you need good logistics. Yeah. And a good team. And a good team. That's the most important part. With a, without a good team, nothing will work. Alex, thank you very much for your time today. I'm, I'm looking forward to my last uh, day and a half, although it's going to be very sad to leave. <laughs> well, it was great having you here, and, uh, and I really hope we can have you here again. Thank you. And that's it for another two weeks. Uh, we I'm not sure who's going to be on the next show. Uh, we'll have to see. I can I can I can give you a I can I can give you a heads up on who I think it's going to be. So I edited a podcast that we did in the states way back in uh, March with Brad Christian from Sitka, and I think that'll be the next one we put okay, out. Okay, cool. Well, that'll be cool to get Brad on. Uh, it was one. Yeah, I think we we spoke about it two weeks ago. It was one of those ones that we did right at the end that we just forgot that we had done it because we were so busy. And it was right at the end of the trip, but uh, I'm actually excited to re-listen to it because I actually can't even remember what we talked about. Yeah, and actually, you know, we have another one that I completely slipped my mind because it was on, I think, it, again, it was in those last two days where we did like nine podcasts in two days. Uh, we got with a, a brilliant old gentleman called Benno Williams that Tyler yeah. hooked us up with. And that's a really long podcast that is probably going to require a bit of editing because we were t- <laughs> he was giving us references out of books in his library while we were doing it so we were like pausing and pulling books out the library and giving them to me and he was reading quotes uh to us from things that he had written in the past so i haven't even begun to re-listen to that podcast edit it yet uh, but that's going to be that's going to be brilliant yeah me tita just did uh, either an article or something oh, really? similar to, uh, about him uh so i think we'll uh, we'll need to get that out on like not yeah. the next show but the show after well, uh, we shall leave uh, you good people to enjoy. I'm sure, I think it's the end of the summer holidays, so if you've got kids, then it'll be the end of the, the holidays for your, your kids, uh, getting back into routine. And uh, we, I'm sure, like we do every single year, at the end of the school holidays, we see a huge spike in listeners uh, when they go back to work on the Monday, uh, once their kids have gone back to school. But uh, despite that, uh, we seem to have been p- pulling in more people from different places around the world at an increasing rate. So thank you very much if you're, uh, if well, 
Thank you to the, everyone who has listened from the beginning. Thank you to everyone who has recently started to listen. And to the brand new listeners, thank you especially. Um, we'd love to know how you found the show if you're a brand new listener. Uh, so feel free to let us know. We'd like to know how you came across it for the first time. I, I feel like because so many people are going to the, the back catalogue and starting at number one, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, number one sounds completely different to what it is now, that we should have, like, an intro show before number one, uh, now that we're a few years down the line. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea, actually. Maybe when I get back from Africa, we should do that. Um, do a, a show zero. Yeah. The ground, ground zero, where it all started. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's uh, that's it for, for this show. Um, don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, head over to Patreon. Um, also, don't forget to enter the competition, which was to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, Volume 3. And the sound that you need to identify was played at the very, very start of the podcast. So you'll have to go back and listen to that if somehow you've managed to miss it. Or if you skipped the intro, which you should never do because there's so much important information in there, then you need to go back and listen. You'll hear the sound and then you can enter the competition to win uh, a copy of Volume 3 on wildlife management. If you want to contact the show, it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Our Instagram is pace underscore brothers. And uh, uh, there was one other thing. Oh, our website is all the W's, the pacebrothers.com. And you can listen to the show on a huge array of things. Um, I saw there was a few people commenting on YouTube videos the other day. It does get uploaded to YouTube, but it's just the file. There's nothing, there's no video with it. Uh, but uh, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean are uh, some top listening uh, apps. So uh, get onto that if you want to change your app. But uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>